Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I hope you're all well and surviving this freezing weather we're experiencing in the UK at the moment. It's a time for hunkering down, hibernating, and making a pie of some sort, I think. Now you know my plans for the weekend. Don't forget, if you haven't subscribed yet, well, then you must. And don't forget to rate and review as it really does help others to find the podcast. And that is always a good thing. My guest today is Ed Kimber. You may know him by his pen name, The Boy Who Bakes. Ed won the first ever season of The Great British Bake Off way back in 2010. And he has gone on to do all manner of exciting things since then. He's worked at Le Manoir in the pastry section. He's written three cookery books to date and has created recipes for dozens of magazines. Plus he's taught cooking. He's gone on TV. I mean, he's just done the lot. He is a man of many talents. He's a baker, a writer, and he makes the best macarons in town. Welcome, Ed. Thank you very much. <laughs> that, I was going to say he's a baker, he's a writer, he's a candlestick maker, but I don't know if that is one of your talents. <laughs> I'm actually about to do a project with a candle company. No way! Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that would have been the best opening yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah, I'm not technically making the candles. Okay, well. We'll have something to do with candles. That's a technicality. <laughs> um, I can't believe the first series of Bake Off was back in 2010. How mad is that? Well, when I actually think about when I did the show, it was, I auditioned for the show almost eight years ago it's an insanely long time ago such a long time but also does it feel like it's kind of gone really fast in certain ways yeah i mean i think the amount of things i've done in those seven eight years have been kind of insane i think the idea that i a when i did the show i never thought i would write a book that wasn't any aim of mine the life i have now the job i have now was not my aim at all so the idea that i've now written three books i make a living from writing for for magazines for public you know for all sorts of different things is kind of insane. So, um, yeah, it's been an amazing seven years. Is it true that it all came about after a friend of yours saw a tiny little advert in the Women's Institute magazine? <laughs> yeah, I always say it's the Women's Institute, and I think that's right. But actually, it wasn't a friend. It was a complete stranger. Oh, right. <laughs> um, I had been uh, kind of baking for many, many years. I started baking when I was a little kid. But I had got a job at university after university and I hated it and I was kind of miserable. But it was a job just uh, like a hangover whilst I figured out what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. But whilst I was doing that, I set up this blog, which was terrible. And I was kind of documenting me learning more about baking okay. because <laughs> I'd been turned down from catering college. And so I decided to try and give myself a, an education at home so I could do baking as a career somehow. And as I was doing this blog, I wasn't doing it for anybody else but me, which I know is the cliche thing about writing a blog. Yeah. But this was before blogs were really popular. How all the best people start. <laughs> <laughs> but I was doing it for me, but actually then it started doing okay. It got some traction and someone who read that emailed me. And I actually, I've tried to find the email. I can't find it. Someone emailed me and said, I've seen this advert. I think it's for you. Which I initially said, no, that was stupid. Because I was a very shy you know, young person. I, the idea of me going TV was insane. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah, well, not just that. I just, I, I never thought anyone in their right mind would put me on TV. And I didn't think I'd be good enough 
at baking. But then two friends of mine then kind of convinced me. They basically said, look, you have nothing to lose. You probably won't get on. So why not try it anyway? And so that's the only reason I did, because I thought I wouldn't get on, because I didn't want to do TV. I thought it would be too nervous. But also, I just loved that so much, because you applied for catering college, and they turned you down, which is unbelievable. (laughs) Um, But if they hadn't have turned you down, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have been able to get on Bake Off. So I kind of love stories like that, sort of everything happens for a reason. Okay, let's talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Um, my mom was a really good cook, but she, when we were kids, I wouldn't say she was necessarily adventurous, she's kind of very traditional, but in a really good way. I suppose like for her generation, she probably was a little bit adventurous. Like, I remember she told me the first time she ever had pasta, you know, yeah. that, that was a thing. She remembers when bananas came to the country. <gasps> it's um, so strange, isn't it? Yeah, because we just don't really have that anymore. No. Jackfruit's the current one. Yeah. Um, but it's not the same thing, I guess. We're all a bit jaded. Um, but it was kind of very simple things. So, like the, an apple crumble is like one of the most nostalgic things for me ever. Like my mom's spaghetti bolognese, which is... You know, I, I love it, and I'm not criticizing my mom because every time she hears these interviews, she thinks I'm I'm <laughs> slagging her off, and I'm really not because I love it. But it was like it was kind of a slightly 1980s, 1990s ragu. It was not a real bollock, like it's not a real ragu. It's kind of a quick one, but it's so delicious, and yeah. it's kind of pure comfort to me. But there are a couple of dishes that my dad makes when we go home still, and I love going home to them. So he makes what started off as a Delia Smith thai green curry mm-hmm. and it's not really like a proper thai dish it's much more of like a coconut broth okay. it's oh, so damn. tasty um Wait, so what makes it different from a thai green it curry? just doesn't have the same kind of layering of flavors in there and okay. um, it's just a lot lot simpler but it's so so tasty and it is mainly coconut milk based it's not well actually it's not very green at all it's kind of white but it's so <laughs> so tasty that sounds good and like oh, every time i go home at some point my dad will make that so that's a really big one but like from childhood it has to be just really simple things like my mum's apple crumble or scones or just kind of really simple, humble dishes. Funny you should mention your ma- <laughs> your mum's scones. Scones or scones? I never know. Scones. Yeah, yeah. I, I seem to be in the minority, but it just sounds right to me. I just think I already sound like the Queen. So if I say scone, <laughs> it sounds really posh. So I'm going to say scone. Well, when I was a kid, because I grew up in Bradford, and I don't really have a strong Yorkshire Bradford accent for a couple of reasons, but... Everyone else around me was saying scone and I was saying scone. So it was another reason why people thought I was posh, which I'm definitely not. (laughs) Yeah, I think scone does sound posher, doesn't it? Uh, Especially with the northern accent. But talk to me about your mum's ones because they sound amazing. She doesn't use fruit. She uses Uh, mincemeat. Kind of, yeah. She she does sometimes. But when we were kids, um, like she's a big Christmas baker. So it's kind of, I have a lot of kind of formative memories of baking at Christmas. And she would always buy too much mincemeat. So I don't know. She's been doing it for... Oh, I'm not going to reveal her age, but oh. a, a long, long time. <laughs> you will be in her bad books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but she's been making it since I was little, since I, at least since I was little. And I'm 32, so that gives you an idea. But she would just not use the fruit. She would use mincemeat, like Christmas mincemeat. So any Americans listening, that's not meat. It's actually fruit. Um, no, it's a bit of an alarming name, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's because mincemeat used to have meat in it. So the original mincemeat did have yeah. meat in it. Um, did it have meat or did it have... Um, but it had meat in it. Originally. It was a sweet meat, so it had mm. some meat in it. Um, but she would use that instead of fruit and it gives... It's real subtle. You you do taste the fruit. Obviously, you still have raisins and currants and things in there. But it adds this very subtle sweetness. But I also think because there's a slight syrup to it and there's fat in there, it really adds some tenderness too. Mm. So I have this real memory of going to cookery 
class at school. I was at home economics and we had to make scones. So I made my mom's and the home ec teacher said, oh, tell your mom this is a very good oh. idea. <laughs> so you just, you do you stir in? Yeah, you meat? basically do exactly the same. So for us, we I mix the mincemeat into the liquid ingredients. And then when you pour it all in and bring it yeah. together, you just do it that way. So it's really easy and it's a real simple thing. But it was one of the first things I learned to make when I was a kid. But it wasn't the first, but it was one of the first things because it was a constant in the house. Um, scones were one of those things that was just around. We always kind of had them. Have you ever tried making a scone without butter and just using double cream instead? <laughs> I have a scone recipe that does have cream in it because yeah. the Americans often put cream in their oh, scones. Oh, do they? Yeah. Their scones are very different though because they're a lot drier than ours. Yeah, and these ones, I mean, they taste incredible yeah, like yeah, yeah. This, they're so light but yeah. they don't look nice yeah, yeah, yeah so you yeah. wouldn't want to make them for like a nice tea party <laughs> it's just something that you can just gobble on your own in the kitchen it was funny because um when i was at le manoir which is really funny because when you said the intro people always slightly inflate that because i only ever did a stage at le manoir, oh, did you? <laughs> and i always think one day raymond's gonna call me oh. and go Ed, you have to stop saying this. I'm, like, I'm not saying But it. didn't he ring you and offer he you did? a job? Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't him, but it was on his instruction, apparently. An hour after <gasps> the final finished, I had an email from his, I can't remember the guy's title, but basically at the time he helped run Le Manoir and the hotel and everything. And he reached out and said, Raymond saw you on the final and he sees you want to be a pastry chef. We'd love to give you some experience, so come down. So, so first kitchen I ever worked in. Was Le Manoir. So he's uh, he's been a Bake Off fan since the beginning. Actually, he's been quite critical of Bake Off oh. since then. So I, I think he either forgot that's why he was on. Um, but he, he was a very, very kind guy. He gave me a quote for my first book, which he basically said was like a bit too indulgent, but in a good way. Um, but he's a, he's a very nice guy and he loves teaching. That's the impression I got. He would come into the kitchen every day and say I was doing something wrong. <laughs> but in a really sweet way like this is how you do it and yeah, I was there for two weeks and it was it told me instantly I don't want to work in a kitchen <laughs> yeah well I mean that's a very useful thing to discover yeah because no. you do wonder am I gonna like this well I think it was partly like what they do is amazing and they're very high-end but I think I have learned over the last few years I'm a bit of a control freak um, which people keep reminding me. I was at a meeting this morning and my friend was like it's amazing how many things you do I'm like oh yeah I do them all on my own <laughs> but I really like this will sound so pretentious, but I really like kind of the creative process. I like seeing something through from start yeah. to finish. So you're not a delegator? No, but also I, I struggle with delegating a lot, actually. But I really like the whole process. So in the kitchen, you don't do the whole thing. You make an element and then someone else, much more senior, yeah, finishes it's it. It's so strange, isn't it? And I just found that kind of repetition really dull. But also I don't think a kitchen environment is for me. I can be, I can need kind of my own space and I'm kind of insular sometimes. But also it's a very laddie environment. It just doesn't suit me it's at all. It's so laddie. Yeah. I've never been more aware of the fact that I'm a girl when I was working yeah. in a kitchen. I was very aware that I was probably... There was um, there was a girl in the kitchen who was gay. And I was like, oh, I'll speak to you because you're nice. Oh. <laughs> but it was one of the kids where I thought, oh, I don't know if I should tell people I'm gay here. And it wasn't even like... There was nothing negative there. Yeah. It's just kind of that what feeling. you feel in that situation. Mm. Right. Let's talk about <laughs> the second Desert Island dish. Mm. And that's the first dish you learned to cook. That would be um, probably mince pies. I tell this story, which sounds like a slight fairy tale, but it's true. Um, I have this memory of being about, I don't know how old I must have been, but I guess five or six, probably. And I was standing in the kitchen, my, it was at Christmas, my mum was making mince pies, and I had to stand on a stool so I could see the counter. Oh. 
And I was uh, all I was allowed to really do was I think I was allowed to cut out the rings of pe- the circles of pastry for the tops. I mean, that's an like, important job. Yeah, but I always remember like every time I would cook something with my mum, she would talk me through kind of how it was made. So like pastry is something I've always made since I was quite young. Um, but it's all those really simple, humble things. Like I learned to make a crumble when I was really, really young. Like my mom would sit in front of the TV with a bowl of like crumble mixture watching Coronation Street and she would just make it without even thinking. So it's that kind of baking, like really simple, really yeah. traditional, but delicious kind of home style baking. I love these questions so much because it does make you realize how important food memories are in childhood like they play such an important role don't they and it's sort of the things that you do without even thinking them form part of someone else's story well nostalgia has always been a really big part of my work because like when I wrote my first book I spent a lot of time thinking about dishes that I had as a kid family recipes and often if I'm kind of stuck for inspiration for a recipe I'll think about something I had as a kid and I'll try and like reinvent that as an adult, kind of make a grown-up version of it. So I think nostalgia has a really big part to play in everybody's food. I think like what you like as an adult is really impacted by what you're exposed to as a kid. And my parents were really good at trying to expose us to all sorts of different foods. So like when we traveled as kids, we my parents would try and encourage us to eat like local dishes and try things. And I think that's where a lot of my like love of travel, but also love of food from all around the world. And I'm just experimenting and trying different things. I think it's nice when parents treat children sort of as grown ups in terms of food, like they should eat the same things that you're eating and sort of be encouraged to try new things. Like my family's kind of rule was, Oh, in my head at least, it was, you know, it's okay to dislike something, but you have to at least have tried it. Yeah. So every time I would say I didn't like something, my mum would say, when was the last time you tried it? And I'm like, oh, a week ago. Yeah. Wasn't true. I'm like, well, I've never had that. Because <laughs> I think kids often say they don't like things and they just make up that dislike. Yeah, Whereas definitely. I, there was definitely things I did not like as a kid, but I was always willing, or generally always willing to try something. Yeah. So I can't meet you and not ask, what <laughs> did you think of the new format of Bake Off? I quite liked it. The format really didn't actually change. No. The format was the same, pretty were you, much. Were you worried when you heard that they were changing it? Um, not particularly. Not as much as a lot of people who watch the show like relig- religiously yeah, were. Yeah, people were up in arms. Yeah, and I found it a little strange because actually some people's response seemed really counterintuitive to me because there was people saying... I love this show. I'm never watching it again. And I yeah. thought, <laughs> do you love the show or do you just love Mary then? Uh, they were very hung up on the idea that the show was amazing, but they would never watch it again. And I thought, well, if you love the show so much, give it a chance at least. Yeah. And thankfully it did really well. I think it, it got half the views that previous series did, but for Channel 4, oh, that's amazing. I think it got 7 million. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but for Channel 4, that's incredible. Like, yeah. it beats their records because Channel 4 is just a small channel anyway. So for Channel 4, it was a major success. Yeah. Um, which is really good because, you know, as much as I like to think it's been, you know, seven, eight years since I went on a show, and I like to think that I've moved on quite yeah. a bit, <laughs> I still get brought back to it every day by work and things. So... Yeah, it was one of those things where I thought, I don't want it to disappear. I have real fondness for it. So I just thought, I was just intrigued to see what would happen with it. And thankfully, I think they did a really, really good job with it. I was actually surprised who I liked on the show because 
I didn't know what I'm going to forget his name now. Noel. Noel Fielding. Yeah, I didn't know what he would be like. And actually, I thought he ended up being better. He, he was so good, wasn't yeah. he? I thought he was. He seemed quite nervous at the start, but he fell into it so well. Yeah, him and Sandy. Well, them. actually, I, I've never been a like. I like Sandy on certain shows, but I, I didn't think she would fit the show. And actually, I think by the end of the series, they fitted together really nicely. Yeah. And I thought Prue was brilliant on the so show. So good. I actually yeah. thought Prue, in some ways, was the mm. perfect fit for the show. I wasn't going to say that. I thought you were going to say but something was, very controversial. That was actually an opinion that I saw all over the internet, that a lot of people thought she was better than Mary. And I'm not going to say yes or no to that, but I do think got she an was... exclusive scoop here, everyone. <laughs> I think she was such a natural <laughs> fit for the show. And like, I've met Prue a few times, and she's so... She's such a strong woman and so knowledgeable. And I think she's a really impressive person. Yeah. Um, well, she's amazing on the Great British Menu. British menu yeah. so she's, she's not doing of, that anymore, sadly. No, but um, she was really good on that. Yeah. And it sort of seemed like a really natural thing for her. Yeah, to completely. Like, I mean, I teach at least her old school that she used to run. And you can't set something up like that and run it for so many years without, you know, knowing a thing or two. And she just seems incredibly knowledgeable and i think actually it's a it must be a really hard job to fall into that position and there were so many people that said kind of like behind the scenes that i would never take that job you know because the first person who do, does it will be a disaster they'll be fired and then the next person is the one you want to be well, debbie downers i know but i actually think they, they might have had a point if it didn't work but thankfully the whole thing gelled together really really yeah. well she's shone yeah she she really did and actually i thought she she became kind of the, almost the star of the show just because she's so I thought she fitted in so so well on the show the only thing I didn't like about Noel was his crazy taste in and, shirts and which I love I, really no, I love them on him but every episode my boyfriend was like frantically googling like where did he get that shirt from it's like please yeah. don't Most start dressing like that shirts. no you no. will not look like no <laughs> the third desert island dish is the best dish you've ever eaten that would be really really tricky just because I've been very lucky in my life to have kind of had some amazing meals. I think one of the ones that sticks out recently was me and my partner went to Japan a while ago and we had this amazing meal at the hotel that we were staying. I was writing for a magazine about it. And so we kind of got a little bit of nice treatment when they realized they closed the restaurant for <gasps> And what, when they realized you were writing an article? Yeah, like we'd set it up with them that I was going to write about it. So we wanted to try the restaurant but they took it a little bit too far. So we turned up and there was no one in the restaurant. We had a chef all to ourselves. Oh, my goodness. And it was, it was a little awkward, to be honest. Did but, you find yourself like every mouthful? You're like, oh, this is great. Yeah. But actually, me and my boyfriend were there and it actually became just a really, it was actually a really romantic thing. And also, we were 42 floors up oh. and it was a teppanyaki meal. So the chef was stood in front of us cooking at a table and a, the food was just insanely good quality. And the chef, even though he spoke barely any English, we made this kind of sweet connection where he just seemed really, he really wanted us to like everything. And it was just, it was one of those kind of once in a lifetime meals. But it almost wasn't about the food in some ways. It was about everything together. Yeah. Um, which I think a good meal always should be. In some ways, I think sometimes the food actually comes secondary to everything else. Definitely. Because, but you kind of knew, know if you ever went back to that, you kind of wouldn't want to go back to the yeah. restaurant because it wouldn't ever be quite the same, would it? Yeah. But also, I think it's like, I'm not a fine dining person at all. I really find it kind of off-putting. So I could go to a Michelin-style restaurant and 
the food would be amazing, but I wouldn't enjoy it because I don't like the environment. Whereas I could go to a street food place and the food wouldn't be anywhere near as good, like technically, but it would make me much more satisfied. So that's, it's more about in some ways dining out for me is about the whole package, especially the kind of environment and the, the atmosphere and the whole kind of thing. Definitely. That's why food and talking about food is so interesting, Mm. isn't it? Because it's never just about the food. No, no, not at all. I mean, yeah, I've, I've, I've been very, very lucky over my life to kind of have some ridiculous experiences like that. But that's definitely the one in the last few years that really sticks out in my yeah. mind, for sure. So I knew I liked you when you described how you basically plan all of your traveling <laughs> around food. Yeah, that's really true. <laughs> like, it's really fun to see how different cultures do things. It is. I actually think um, when I, whenever I plan a trip, just because it's one of my main interests and I'm lucky that my boyfriend has similar kind of vibe, food is how I kind of experience a place or one of the ways I experience a place. So I'm going on a book, well, it's not a book tour, it's for a magazine, but I keep calling it a book tour because no one's heard of a magazine tour before. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, book tour sounds great. Sounds way yeah. more fun. That's what I'm, I'm filming the whole thing for um, YouTube and it will be called a book tour. And then in the video, I'll say it's not really a book tour, but, you know, kind of. Um, I mean, that's splitting hairs, isn't it? I mean, Let's call it a book tour. We're doing tour. the same thing that we do on a book tour. It just happens to be for one issue of a magazine. Yeah. You've sold it to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but we're going to San Francisco, Minneapolis, and New York. Oh. So San Francisco is my favorite place in America, bar none. I love the place. Because of the food? Yeah, but also just the atmosphere. I I, I was always one of those New York people. I was like, oh, I'm going to go live in New York for six months. I just, I love the place. And then I went to San Francisco two years ago and I basically stepped off the plane and in that first day I was like oh my god this place is amazing I love 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 San Francisco and I kind of just totally fell in love with it and a I think it's the best baking city in America by far just the culture of baking is so high and there's definitely a real love of food and baking in that city but it's just more relaxed than New York and it has a little bit more kind of chilled out vibe there um, and I just, I completely loved it. Um, and then I went to New York for work not far after. And I thought, oh, I do love this place, but I couldn't live here anymore. Like, it suddenly realized it's too much. Mm. I would find it quite stressful, I think. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas I love New York to visit. Like, I'm, I'm going in two weeks and I cannot wait because there's so many, like, bakeries I need to go and visit and um, all that kind of stuff. But I don't think I could live there. The fourth Desert Island dish is your favorite sandwich. I, I am actually a really big sandwich person. Like I love, like, well, actually, this is not an elegant sandwich, but I love a ham and cheese panini. <laughs> it's so basic, but I love Ooh, it. So good. But I think my favorite sandwich has to be the Christmas leftover sandwich. It's just the best. I actually prefer it to Christmas dinner. That has been a very popular option. It's just so yeah, good. for a reason. It's yeah. so good. But it, I think it, for me, like, I, <laughs> I moved to London, so I'm all about the sourdough. Um, but yeah, I do love, like, Actually, it's so sad. I would actually bring sourdough at home because you can't buy bread. Oh, really? I've done. I'm so annoying. Um, <laughs> you are so London. But last year I brought home uh, ingredients to make a cocktail. Right, I don't like think, a Christmas cocktail. I don't think it's the way you say scone. I think it's maybe the I'm sourdough just thing. <laughs> I'm just annoying. But uh, yeah, sourdough, sourdough with lots of salted butter, um, a tiny amount of cranberry just because I think it's too sweet, but a little bit's really nice. And then thinly sliced ham, turkey stuffing. And if you've got some left, which we never do, a couple of little chipolata sausages and two are the best thing. The thing that makes me really sad 
about the Christmas sandwich, if there is a thing that can make you sad, is that it's it's so limited to such a short time period. Like, can we not just I have it all year? I think it's hard to excuse as well in some ways because it is a little bit ridiculous. You put sausages in my sandwich, don't judge me. <laughs> well, there is also, I love a really good Cuban sandwich, which is kind of similar-esque in that it has different types of meats, normally turkey, uh, ham, and pepperoni, and cheese, and it has a whole like layering of things. I think that's why I like it, is it's kind of, a layered flavor thing. It has like lots going on. That sounds like a very sophisticated version of a Domino's Mighty Meaty. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure if I've had a Domino's Mighty Meaty. I'm more of a pepperoni oh, person. Pepperoni you are missing out. <laughs> so you went to Japan last year and it yeah, sounded it amazing. amazing. Obviously, Japanese food is incredible, mm. but I wondered what's the Japanese approach to baking? Do you know what? Actually, um, it's been really intriguing because just before we went to Japan, I started working on a proposal for something that involved travel and other cultures and baking. And I thought Tokyo would go on the list just because I'd heard so many amazing things about it. But when I got there, I became, you know, low-key obsessed with the place. Really? Oh, it, it was my favorite holiday by far. It was the first like proper holiday me and my boyfriend had been on, like long holiday, which is always a real test of a relationship. But it was also just, it was amazing because we both kind of both fell in love with this place instantly. And like when we left, so we did Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto, and Hiroshima. And we kind of started and finished with Tokyo. And when we got there at the end, we were both like kind of really sad to be leaving. It was really like, we don't want to go. But Tokyo and baking, actually all of Japan and baking, like they have a really strong baking culture, like massively more than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And I from feel, all angles as well. I feel ignorant, but that's surprising to me. I mean, they have they have a real traditional Japanese kind of sweet culture, which is different. You wouldn't necessarily recognize it as baking in some mm. ways. Like the um, mo- mochi. Yeah, like mochi. And, um, but even even more simple things that it's, I wouldn't call it baking, I would call it sweets. I'm going to get this name wrong, and I think it's wagashi. And it's kind of, it's much, much more simple things. But yeah, kind of mochi-based, that kind of stuff. And it's really fascinating because it's just something we don't have. But beyond that, they've kind of added a layer of kind of Western-style baking, but made it their own. Mm. So one of the really fascinating things about Japan is their obsession with French baking. So there's a lot of really amazing Parisian bakeries that have shops in Tokyo or in just Japan. And actually, like one of the most famous French bakers, PMA, he opened in Japan before he opened in Paris because really? he could make money there. And like, it's so, so popular. And they go crazy about it. Japanese mm. people seem to have a real love of something new and... And um, Western. Uh, yeah, especially... I don't know if it's because it's different or... I, I don't really know where it comes from, but it's something I want to explore more. But the thing that was really impressive was just the amount of bakeries. You can't walk... Like, the, the cliche of being in Paris is, like, every corner has a bakery. And like, every second shop in, in Tokyo seems to be some sort of bakery. And the main thing is, if you go into the subway system, the metro... There is bakeries in the metros all over the place. Like some of them have like full on food halls in the basement of the oh, subway stations. That's what we need. It's so good. Yeah. We got lost in one of them actually for an hour. We couldn't find our way out. <laughs> but they have. Accidentally. Oh no, literally, we were actually getting quite stressed with each other because we couldn't find where we'd left our luggage. Oh, we put oh, in a locker no. and we had the plane to catch. Oh, God, that is quite stressful. Um, but their baking is incredible. They have very Western style baking. Then they have Western baking that they've kind of added Japanese influence to. And then they've taken that further and it's kind of an, its own thing. And you have all levels. So like some of the train stations have like 
big chain kind of lower quality bread bakeries because they're actually really obsessed with bread mm, really which obsessed is surprising with bread. isn't it? that surprised me a little mm. bit actually just because i've been told like the japanese don't eat that much bread they don't eat dairy and then you see tons of soft serve ice cream places yeah and tons yeah. of bread places and like some of them aren't necessarily like the highest quality but they're still amazing quality mm. and there was this one dish called that i'm obsessed with called curry pan which is basically like a curry filled donut covered in breadcrumbs on the outside curry filled donut <laughs> yeah technically okay. they wouldn't call it a donut i guess but it's basically what yeah. it is it's so good mm. but then, then on the last day that we were there we found this bakery called i think it's bakery jeu like bakery day but it actually has just a symbol but when you googled it that's kind of what came up and it's this tiny bakery on this back street that looked like there would be nothing on it and it was such a high class bakery i'm like why did we find this on this last day i'm so, so annoyed, annoyed. Like, i was really annoyed but those kind of holidays obviously they're amazing mm. but they make me frustrated with my stomach because <laughs> you can only eat as much as oh, you can clearly eat haven't met me before but, <laughs> you know you've got three meals a day plus obviously snacks yeah. but it's hard to sort of ration that out oh yeah it? definitely it's actually quite funny because my boyfriend was like we can't have any more sweet things today i'm like yeah no of course not oh and um, <laughs> i could have some more yeah <laughs> always i mean that's a different stomach i think what well, <laughs> when i was a kid i used to say i had a stomach in my leg um but well, yeah no i love it as obviously an incredible baker um i'm interested to know your fifth desert island mm. dish and that's the dish you eat the most often <laughs> at the moment it's a um vegetarian lentil curry <laughs> that's a uh, good answer yeah we didn't do veganuary because i hate that name yeah but we decided that we needed to you know not for health reasons actually just for ethical reasons need to be eating less meat yeah um, my friend harry eastwood wrote a book called carnivore carnival carnival i'm gonna get that wrong one of the two and it was i all, mean there's a difference there's a big difference <laughs> but i think if it was carnival it was a spin on the idea of carnivore i think it's carnival i'm pretty sure it's carnival. okay anyway harry eastwood who's an amazing food writer lives in paris and she is not vegetarian and the whole book is about cooking with meat. It's all meat recipes. However, in the book, she really explains really well about kind of ethical reasons why you should eat less meat, which seems odd for a book about meat. Yeah. But actually, she's trying to encourage you to, uh, when you eat meat, it should be the highest quality you can afford and buying it less. So kind of making it stretch almost. Yeah. And I, actually, it kind of, it. I already knew all those things, but actually, it really did get to me about the idea that really we shouldn't be buying mass market meats just no. because it's really bad for the environment it's bad for the animals and if you kind of knew the the way a lot of that you know intense farming happens you really wouldn't want to support no, it it's true it's really good that we're all becoming much more aware it does feel like a bit of a sea change doesn't yeah. it yeah and i think i know it's a really hard thing to kind of change your way of cooking and your way of buying because does anybody want to go spend £10 on a chicken versus, you know, £3 from a supermarket? And I know that's a really big shift and it is more expensive and I understand that poses difficulties. But if you only do it once a week rather than every day, then it... Also, like, my, my flatmate is a very, very good cook and he does this thing every week where he buys a chicken and he buys a good quality chicken, he breaks it down and he uses it throughout the week. So, yeah. yes, he's eating meat more than twice a week, but he's taken that one animal and used it. yeah. And it's so much more cost-effective. Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. It's funny, I don't know if... I, I, I sometimes think my generation doesn't do dinner parties anymore. I don't know if it's a, a money thing, or... I don't know, we just don't seem to do it as much. Often when we do go to friends like for dinner, it's much more casual than yeah. traditional. 
dinner party. And we I, can call that a dinner party. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, I think when I first kind of moved to London, everyone just assumed I would bring dessert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but thankfully, all my friends have kind of stopped that pressure now because, you know, it's that kind of busman's holiday kind yeah. of vibe. Um, but then I also had friends saying they were really nervous to make uh, desserts. I'm like, that'd be silly. Like, I'm as much as I can be, like, my boyfriend says that I'm a snob when it comes to certain things, which is true. Like, I don't like cheap, nasty coffee and I don't like bad chocolate. But that's, I, it's only because I'm really lucky that I work yeah. in food and I'm surrounded by, you know, really good products. It doesn't mean that you're judgmental when no, you're using no, your friends. It means food. it doesn't mean I yeah. don't enjoy things that aren't as good. No. So, like, my friend Paul, who's a chocolatier, like he will happily tell you his favorite like supermarket candy bar, you know. And there's nothing wrong with having multiple levels of taste. Yeah. So like, I love it. Well, that sounds like all my friends that's a terrible, which is not true at all. But like people think they can't bake for me because it won't meet my sons. I'm like, if you make something for me, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So my favorite dinner party thing is not having to make. Anything. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm actually actually tonight. I'm having my best friend and his fiance over to mine and my mine and my boyfriend's house we don't live together over to my boyfriend's house and he's making um a tagine and i'm making a rhubarb crumble which ah. doesn't go together at all well no i have to um this afternoon i have to film uh, a recipe and it's rhubarb crumble so I, that's what you're getting yeah for that's perfect i do i mean i think people put too much emphasis on sort of menu planning yes. and it doesn't matter if it doesn't go to i mean we're no not, i also no. think people try uh, try too much i think mm. when you're doing something for people at home just do really good, simple. It doesn't have to be elegant. People really think, appreciate. I don't think anyone simple. goes home at the end of the day and they're like, oh, that main course and that pudding did not go. In the restaurant. <laughs> um, so I think that simple is good. So, yeah. you know, rhubarb right now is super in season. Um, so hot right now. So, yeah, it's so good. So, like, making crumble really is a, a no brainer for me. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be a really nice dish, but won't go with tagine at all. <laughs> when you won Bake Off. Mm. Was it literally an overnight thing that you had job offers and opportunities? Like, how does it no. how does it actually work? Because what you're doing now is it's so varied, and <laughs> how yep. from the outside, yeah, how does it all work? So I'd say it's probably very different now. I think the second you win, you're probably showered with job offers and lots of money, which yeah. was not the case for me. Not bitter, um, <laughs> but actually, I didn't want any of that. Like, I generally went on the show in the end because well a when i started going for it, i never thought i would get on the show but i thought a it'll be fun i'll get to see how a tv show works and then when i got on the show and i started to do well which really surprised me at the time people kept telling me you are really good at baking like am i oh okay <laughs> didn't realize it was just something i loved i then thought okay well i maybe can make a career out of this but not in the way that I do now. Genuinely, the production company started fielding a couple of job offers for me from like little bakeries in Bradford. Like okay. I got offered a job in a, a kind of, oh, I can't remember what they make. It was like an industrial but small bakery. And like now it sounds like an awful job that I would have hated. But that's all I really wanted. I wanted to go and work in a small bakery, just yeah. making baking a living. That's all I wanted. Yeah. And so I won the show technically in june and it started airing in september i think and so basically i got home i quit my job as soon as i could i handed in my notice and i was like bye yeah <laughs> literally it was like the happiest day of my life <laughs> i got out of there and then i was like oh 
Now you're unemployed for three months while you wait for the show to start. Oh, that's stupid. Oh, um, God. So what did you do for those three months? Nothing. Oh, my God. Ed. <laughs> I was like, just waiting for this show to start. <laughs> See um, you later, suckers. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It was really stupid because I'm like, oh, now I have no money. So I came down to London when the final aired and did a ton of press. And then I had no idea what to expect. And so I, I basically... I didn't move to London until January. So I had like three months of coming back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I kind of, in those three months, I wasn't work. I wasn't being paid at all, really. I was doing like TV shows and I was doing interviews, but I wasn't being paid. And I kept thinking, okay, so I have to make a decision about what I'm going to do. So in the January of that year, basically what I decided was I'm going to move to London. I'm going to try and make a job, a, a career out of this. And I will give myself a year. Not that I had enough money to live for a year. I had enough yeah. money to live for about a month. Okay. <laughs> so I moved to London. I lived on a friend's... Well, <laughs> I always used to say I lived on a friend's couch. And then I said that in front of a journalist. And my friend was stood next. She went, no, you didn't. I gave you a bed. <laughs> but in my Just, like... you're ruining my... Uh... No, I know. In like, my starving artist narrative, <laughs> I'd forgotten it was kind of... Because it was in this like tiny box room. And it was like a little sofa. It wasn't like a comfortable... Yeah. So my starving artist thing is true. So I kind of lived and I lived on a spare bed for a month. And in that month, I got my first book deal. Okay. But it wasn't, it wasn't like now where I was fielding offers from every publisher in the country. It was, it was like, I went out and hustled and, yeah. and pitched to everybody. And I was lucky that I got an, a few offers and from different people. Did you have an agent that helped you do that? Or were you literally just going out there knocking on I doors? I did. So in the few months when I wasn't living in London, I was I filmed a TV show called Market Kitchen Big Adventure, which was on the Good Food Channel. Got cancelled very quickly after I went on it. No, no. Oh. <laughs> no coincidence. No, no. <laughs> um, but there was, there was meant to be like these members of the public that were there to kind of eat the food. And I got chatting to one, and I genuinely, I was kind of naive still. I just assumed they were actual members of the public, but they weren't. They were like industry people. Oh. So one of them was an agent and a restaurant PR. I had no idea. And he, he was just chatting to me and said, oh, do you ever think about doing a book? And I kind of lied and went, oh, yeah, sure. I'd definitely be, want to do a book. I had no thoughts, really, of doing yeah. a book at that point. Um, but he said, okay, well, I'm an agent if you want to really think about it. And I hadn't even thought about getting an agent. Like I was so not in that world at all. I just did not think about getting an agent. Um, whereas now they've got agents before the show's finished. You know, it's like they're on it. And so I was like, oh, okay. And then I moved to London. We pitched the book. And thankfully within, I think, two weeks, we had an offer. And I started working on it. So actually a Facebook memory came up yesterday for me. And it was I made this cake that's actually on the cover of the book. And it's a family recipe from Canada for a chocolate cake. And it, you know, it ended up being the cover. And I'm like, okay, that was seven and a half years ago now. <sighs> Um, oh, so much has happened since then. Yeah, but it, it's really interesting because it's funny how I look at people who've been on the show and, and won the show and their kind of public persona goes so quickly, so high. I think if I'd have known that would have happened, I would not have gone on the show. Yeah, I didn't it was want a totally different that. thing, wasn't it? No, a lot of my friends always say that I have like the perfect position because I have, I'm really lucky that over the last seven years I've worked really stupidly hard. And I have a really, I hope I have a really nice reputation in food that people respect what I do. And like all the food magazines I work for really like my work and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But I'm not like walking down the street and someone goes, oh, that's Ed Kimber. You know, yeah. <laughs> it happens occasionally and I find it really what, embarrassing. You don't get papped? <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> Thank God. I'm I think it's very cool. <laughs> so we're on to the final seventh mm -hmm. desert island dish. And it's the last dish you would choose to eat before being oh, cast God. off. I mean, I think there is something to be said about nostalgia. 
And so I kind of think there is something about like my mom's apple crumble. It's one of those dishes that I do love. Well, so you have been quite mean about her cooking. So no, I feel like, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. Don't, that's not true, mom. <laughs> um, don't listen to this one. You know, she, uh, like, it's just, I think there are certain things about formative years and the food that you cooked in those years that would be the case. I would also say there was, um, when we were in Osaka, there was this ramen place we went to. We had to wait, I think, 45 minutes to get in. It was very, very popular, but also just very small. They were unusual in that it was a, was it chicken ramen? Which is a little bit more, because it's normally pork or uh, soy sauce or, uh, you know, salt-based um, ramen. And this one, I, th- I think it was chicken, but it was so good. And it was dipping ramen. So uh, dipping ramen, uh, sukemen, which I'm going to say, I know I'm saying wrong. Um, it's basically you take the kind of sauce that you would, the soup, and you concentrate it. So you reduce it so it's thicker. Mm-hmm. And then you have normally um, cold noodles and you basically dip it in and then slurp them up so because it's thicker it coats the whole noodle so it's just like perfectly seasoned flavored noodles and it was yum it was i, I didn't actually order the dipping one annoyingly mike my other half did the ramen i had was also amazing it was just one of those dishes where i'm like i could eat this every day for the rest of my life it was incredible that's a great answer maybe maybe t- for dessert i'd have the apple crumble don't go together yeah. again at all no, but, that does uh, not matter it's your last meal <laughs> apple crumble. <laughs> and you're allowed to take with you one little luxury item that can be anything you like i mean i i, I love photography so maybe my camera maybe but then no one would see the images so oh, but you may be rescued at some point and then you Document know make experience. a beautiful book <laughs> <laughs> i'll pitch that um <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe music or like my my phone with like podcasts and okay. just because I'm kind of an obsessive listener. Yeah. So I think I listen to about I think at the moment it's twenty podcasts I'm listening to every week, which is a lot. And I love music, so um, maybe that. Yeah, we'll again. give you a phone full of just all of those things with like three yeah. years worth of podcasts. Yeah, just in case I'm there for three. Obviously, years. <laughs> with desert island dishes as number one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for letting us hear your pleasure. desert island dishes. How great is Ed? So much good stuff in there. And in honor of Ed, I've created a delicious scone recipe, which is up on www.desertislanddishes.co. So make sure you pop over there for lots of lovely recipes. And that's all for now. I will see you next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to come and find me on Instagram. I'm at Made by Margie.